Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, Senator Joe Manchin says there's an insurance policy if 2024 is a Trump-Biden rematch. Could he launch a third-party run? He's here to answer that question alongside former Republican presidential candidate and Trump's ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman. Plus, the top progressive in the House, the top Democrat in the House, I should note, is now apologizing after calling Israel a racist state as the bipartisan backlash on Capitol Hill is only growing. And also, my exclusive sit-down with Georgia's GOP governor, Brian Kemp. He famously withstood Trump's 2020 pressure campaign. Will he support him if he's the Republican nominee? I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Senator Joe Manchin has a long history of keeping his Democratic Party guessing. But tonight, he's creating a new stir after speaking at a town hall in the critical critical early primary state of New Hampshire. This was on behalf of No Labels, which is a nonprofit group that is considering running a third-party candidate in the 2024 presidential election. Critics say it's a spoiler that could pull moderate votes from President Biden and instead give Trump the keys to the White House once again. But the group says that they are not thinking that far ahead right now, instead arguing that America deserves a better choice than Donald Trump or Joe Biden. As for Senator Manchin, he's not ruling out a third-party run, but also says don't call him a spoiler either. I've never been in any race I've ever spoiled. I've been in races to win. And if I get in a race, I'm going to win. Also fueling that 2024 speculation is the man there seated to his right, former Utah Governor John Huntsman, who was with Manchin tonight at that event. He once ran for president in 2012, and he served as an ambassador for both Trump and Obama, but he recently told me he couldn't support Trump again. And joining me now is Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and former governor of Utah and Trump's former ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman. Thank you both for being here. When you talk about what this is going to look like, is this an insurance policy in case the 2024 ticket is looking like it is right now, which is a Biden-Trump rematch? That's probably a good description. You know, basically, we're, we're trying to make sure the parties understand you can't stay in the extreme left or extreme right. The whole process is that most Americans want that center left, center right, or the moderate middle, independent middle, if you will. And hopefully we can make, make them understand that that's where decisions are made, that's where bipartisanship works, that's where you get things done. And right now, people are sick and tired of what they're seeing and upset about all they see is turmoil and havoc. And we can do better than this, and the people expect us to do better. And uh, this is a good movement. Input from all over the country, 50,000 different inquiries came in. They put the common sense agenda together. There's things you can agree, things you might not agree, things you want to adjust or make adjustments to or tweak a little bit. Everybody's involved, but I can tell you a lot of excitement, Caitlin, a lot of excitement. And are both of you willing Caitlin, to Caitlin, this be... has been interesting. Oh, go ahead, Ambassador. Yeah, the, the, this has been interesting because Joe and I came together about 12 years ago. Uh, 
around starting no labels. Nobody paid any attention, nobody cared. Uh, we could have had an event here in New Hampshire, nobody would have shown up. Today, uh, completely different. So what is the difference? There's been a complete implosion in trust between the voters and the political system. They, 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 they're, they're caught in a doom loop that keeps replaying itself over and over again with the theatrics uh, and the craziness on both sides of the aisle. Meanwhile, nothing gets done. So they see nothing they can even relate to uh, in their own individual lives. So you bring us to where we are today, Caitlin, and there's been incredible interest in something that we weren't even prepared for. I mean, Joe and I picked up on where we left off 12 <laughs> years ago. We come here to New Hampshire to share the, the common sense uh, roadmap. Uh, and I think it really is reflective that the common sense majority has no voice and they're beginning to feel the effects of that and they don't want that to happen any longer. Are both of you willing to be on a no labels presidential ticket? I think it's way too early to jump to conclusions. First of all, no labels is a platform. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a party. So what is it doing that's consequential? Well, number one, it has a document that we released today, uh, this, this booklet, um, that is made up of conversations with tens of thousands of Americans on what they think is important and where they would, where they would uh, identify our priorities. So this common sense roadmap is not something that we just kind of made up. This is a reflection of where the American people are. So that's number one. Number two, No Labels is undertaking this pretty unprecedented and audacious uh, approach to getting uh, on every state's ballot, which I don't think has ever been done before uh, by uh, a, a, an outside group. It's long, it's tedious, it's expensive. Uh, and so you'll have, in a sense, a delivery system should the political, the mainstream political system produce the same results in 24 as it did in 20, in which case Three-fourths of the American voters have said, no, not again. We want an option. Uh, and if I you know, had a dollar for every person who stopped me to say, why is it that we never have an option outside of just the mainstream party um, uh, uh, results? Well, this is providing for the first time the American people a potential option with a delivery system that actually will connect with every state in America. Well, and Senator Manchin- This is not a campaign stop. This is not a campaign stop. I know it's not a campaign stop. This is basically a stop to hear more Americans, especially New Hampshire, very independent, very outspoken. Uh, they want answers. But also a key, this is a great place for us course, to be able to come. A key state where a lot of presidential hopefuls go. Senator Bitchin, your fellow Democratic <laughs> Senator Dick Durbin actually said today, he called you, and I'm quoting him now, said you are America's biggest political tease and that he trusts you'll make a judgment to run for re-election in West Virginia. What's your response to that? Well, my friend Dick Durbin knows more than I know. <laughs> I haven't made any decision, nor will I make a decision, until the end of the year. And my reason for that, I've never seen a, a place in the world that basically the next election starts the day after the last election. I've got a lot of work to do for my state of West Virginia, which I love dearly, I've got a lot of work to do for our government. I mean, to work for, for this great country of ours. And I'll tell you, once you become a target, I might be a suspected target now, but once you become a target, things pretty much uh, are very difficult and shut down on you. So I know everyone's assuming this and that and everything else. The bottom line is that they all know that I've been extremely independent. I've been very upset for the far left and the far right for all of the chatter that we have going on, and both parties think they have to retreat. 
That's not where the American people are. And if they can see this movement where people said, wait a minute, we want common sense solutions to common sense problems that we have every day. They won't talk about the immigration problems that we have, having an immigration policy that absolutely shuts down the border, makes it secured, and then having a pathway with worker visas so we have more good workers in our country and make states responsible. A debt that's out of control uh, and, and inflation. We have streets that aren't safe today. People are scared. You're, and your schools become a killing field. Nobody wants to talk about how do you find a rational uh, position on that or how do you solve the problem. So when they see a Democrat and Republican setting together, talking together, that like each other, uh, that's a novel thing in the political re arena today. That's, I think, why there's so much chatter. And given that, Senator Manchin, another comment from a fellow Democrat of yours today, Mark Kelly, was saying, uh, when it comes to No Labels being a nonprofit, that means it doesn't have to reveal who is donating to it. And he said he framed this as a few people putting dark money behind an organization. Senator Manchin, do you think that people have a right to know who's funding No Labels? I think that people have a right to know how the Democratic Party gets all their money through the dark channels, $1.7 billion dollars in 2020, the Republican Party threw dark money, $1.5 billion, I'm sorry, not trillion, but billion dollars. That's real money. That's real dark money. I believe that Citizens United has basically destroyed the system as we know it. I would vote tomorrow to get rid of Citizens United. But for my dear friend Mark, who I think the world of, to say that point one, the dark money, and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have made a business out of dark money, that's not accurate. Ambassador, neither of you, I should note, are pro-Trump. Senator Manchin voted guilty on both of Trump's impeachments. You yourself was his, you were served as his ambassador to Russia, but you told me that you would never vote for him again. Obviously, the complaint here from critics has been that these efforts could help put Trump back in that office. What do you say to that? I just think it's premature to draw any conclusions. I, I've shared with you before, Caitlin, that I, I don't think Trump makes it to the finish line. I think he, he will be so entangled uh, in, uh, in, in, in legal problems that uh, he just doesn't make it that far. And even if he did, there's no guarantee that uh, when you do the mathematics that this would, in fact, help him. But the very fact that we're having a conversation about minimizing or limi limiting people's choices and participation in the greatest democracy that ever was uh, is a little disconcerting. So having lived in places like China and, and Russia, where people have no choice, where there is no talk about expanding access to the ballot box, where there is no right to assemble and, and express your feelings in a, in a free and open fashion, these are the traditions that we cherish in this country. And when people start talking about, well, you've got to, you've got to limit this or that because the outcomes might, might be A, B, or C, it's just very anti-American. And it just doesn't resonate with me. And I don't think it resonates with a lot of people. But it's preseason in politics. There's a lot of hyperbole about what, what is going on here and about what it all might mean. I think we'd let it play out. This is a country where the people are still in charge and they should be given choices and they should be given a process whereby uh, we can begin to identify the issues that are most pressing in this country and figuring out ways to re resolve them for the sake of the next generation. Caitlin, the greatest thing is to have the choice, the choice to make a decision on how do you fix problems and who's willing to do it. Both the Democratic Party and 
and the Republican Party have the ability to do that. Given that, Senator, basically I mean, play, you, you can, yeah, well, let's things. talk about you in this because, you know, what the, a lot of the criticism is coming from your own party. And you were a key player in a lot of the deals, the legislative action that we saw coming out of the Biden White House in President Biden's mm -hmm. first term. By doing this, are you saying that you don't believe President Biden has governed as the centrist candidate that he ran as? Well, first of all, that's not accurate whatsoever. I believe that every person, when you're in the Senate, no matter who the president is, you want to make sure they succeed and do everything you can, but you have to speak truth to power. So everything that I did, I tried to bring people together. I tried to make sure that, they, that I could go home and explain what we were doing. We need an energy policy that works for our country, that gives us the energy we need to run this country today, but also the investments in the technology for the future. It's a balanced approach, an all-in energy policy. So anything I could have, my vote was critical. I, was, I had a lot of input, but I think I was rational. I wasn't trying to stop things for politics. I was trying to make it better. And I've done the same thing for the first two years with, with uh, President uh, Trump. Uh, but then it got to the point where it made it very difficult. And you have to do the job that you're basically taking an oath to do. You know, 100, uh, 400 and, uh, 535 of us, 100 senators and 435 Congress, we take the same pledge. We take the same oath to protect and defend the Constitution. It doesn't have whether to defend and protect it if it's a Republican or Democrat. You do it for the country. And I'm just so sick and tired of people thinking, oh, you're not on this team and that team. I'm on the American team. I've got one team, one slogan. It's all about America. But what does it say about President Biden that you were part of this effort, that you're up in New Hampshire with Ambassador Huntsman having this conversation today? I think he's been pushed too far left. He knows that. Uh, and we're still friends. We can talk. I just think that basically in a lot of the ways they're interpreting and trying to implement pieces of legislation that never had the intent of what they're trying to do to make something that wasn't passed. So we have our differences. You have the ability to dialogue and to talk about it. But I think he's been pushed too far to the left. I don't think that's his inherent who he is as a person. And I think that he has the strength to fight back and he will. We'll see. Senator Joe Manchin, Ambassador John Huntsman, thank you both for joining tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. Appreciate Great pleasure. It. Great pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you. should also note that I asked Senator Manchin and Ambassador Huntsman about No Label's platform that came out today. They called it this common sense platform. It talked about a lot of the major issues in the country, immigration, Social Security, but it didn't have specifics on abortion and these and policies that are obviously critically important. Ambassador Huntsman said that they are policies put forward to be a roadmap not a destination. Ahead tonight, Democrats are scolding one of their own colleagues after the top House progressive called Israel a racist state. Congressman Jayapal has now apologized, but is it enough? Plus, my exclusive sit-down with a target of Donald Trump's ire in 2020. He tried to get him pushed out of office. The Republican governor of Georgia, where he stands now on the twice-indicted former president. Bipartisan backlash tonight as there are calls for disciplinary action against Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. This outrage is sparked by comments she made during a weekend panel as it was interrupted by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. We have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy. 
After those comments, Jayapal later apologized and said, quote, I do not believe that the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. I do, however, believe that Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government has engaged in discriminatory and outright racist policies and that there are extreme racists driving that policy within the leadership of the current government. Joining me now, former Obama senior advisor David Axelrod and former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farah Griffin. David, I mean, after those comments, there was a lot of backlash yesterday. 43 House Democrats have come out and criticized her. Leadership came out. They didn't mention her by name, but it was pretty clear they were talking about her. But Republicans say that they want disciplinary action to be taken. Ah, yeah. Well, (laughs) All I can tell you is I remember when Marjorie Taylor Greene got elected and it turned out that she had embraced this crazy QAnon idea that the fires in California were uh, set off by the Rothschilds and space lasers. Uh, And uh, she's now one of the close-in lieutenants of Kevin McCarthy. So this is a game, uh, a political game. I think it's a Deadly serious issue. Uh, And I look, I've been critical for a long period of time of uh, the Netanyahu government. Uh, You know, I I, I believe in a two state solution. I believe that uh, permanent occupation is not in the interest of Israel or the Palestinians. All of that is legitimate. I think she got over her skis in front of a crowd and went too far. And she, uh, as much as acknowledged it, And I think let's have a serious discussion about the issue rather than trying to put points on the board, uh, as I think is happening on the Republican side. Well, and I think that there are elements of the progressive left that do veer into anti-Zionism. And I think that there is a there has to be a discussion about, you know, separating the issue of the Israeli and Palestinian dispute and actually not engaging to something that goes a step further, which is what I felt like her disgraceful comments were. But I commend Democrats. They came out roundly and quickly and leadership condemned the comments that she made. That's how it should be handled. Now, I was a little surprised that this came from from the congresswoman because she is a leader. Um, She's not somebody who's known to kind of fly off the handle as much as some of the members of the squad earlier in their careers did. I think that this was a comment that reflected her views, but once she said it, she realized that it needed to be walked back. I also think boycotting the president's uh, visit to the states is not something that's in our best interest. I think yes, I believe that she should. Just for everyone who doesn't know, he's coming to Washington. He's giving an address to Congress, and several progressives are are boycotting his speech, citing human rights tomorrow. Yeah, look, this is an issue. Okay, Uh, the relationship uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, the treatment of the Palestinians. There's another side of the issue, which is uh, acts of terrorism aimed at Israel. And uh, but uh, that is different than questioning essentially the essential quality of Israel, which, after all, was born as a reaction to the worst acts of racism, uh, the Holocaust and Nazi Germany and this emerged, this country emerged from that. So it was a painful uh, thing to say, and I think a thoughtless thing to say. Doesn't undercut the fact that the issue needs to be thought through. The president obviously has concerns about it because he is uh, promoting, still promoting a two-state solution. But I will say this, even as we're having this discussion, you, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of a pretty vibrant democracy in Israel to protest what Netanyahu wants to do in terms of uh, uh, the the judiciary uh, there and undermining the rule of law. And that, to me, speaks to 
of the vibrancy of it. Those people want uh, treat, uh, fair treatment of minorities in that country and so on. So I, I think there's more nuance to this issue than she uh, recognized. Yeah, well, I also want to ask you another development that happened today. This was also in the news because the White House came out today and condemned some astonishing but maybe not surprising comments from the long-shot Democratic presidential contender Robert F. Kennedy Jr., where he suggested that COVID was designed to spare Jewish and Chinese people. These were remarks that were obtained by the New York Post. In fact, COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and, uh, and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. First of all, he is completely wrong. Those comments just amplify racist and anti-Semitic tropes. RFK Jr. claimed afterward, and I'm quoting him now, I have never, ever suggested that the COVID-19 virus was targeted to spare Jews. Of course, you just heard him there on that audio. This is just the latest false conspiracy theory to be, pub- to be pushed by RFK Jr., the same guy who has walked back other of his conspiracy-laden comments, likening public health efforts to Nazi experiments during the Holocaust, suggesting that man-made chemicals in the environment are making children gay. The panel is back with me. I mean, Alyssa... Kevin McCarthy was asked about these comments today. He said, I disagree with everything he said, but RFK Jr. is still set to testify at a hearing on the weaponization of the government and censorship later this week. And he defended the fact that he hasn't been uninvited from that. Well, and it's thematically relevant to what we were talking about before. Anti-Semitism is on the rise all over the world and in this country. And we as Republicans can't have credibility in condemning it if we're going to give a platform to somebody like this who's espousing just absurd untruths and myths. And censorship is a very real issue. There's plenty of great people you can bring on to talk about censorship without amplifying somebody who's a known feeder of misinformation and disinformation. But by the way, I would note, he is pulling at 20% in some polls. I mean, the Kennedy name will get you will get you a certain distance, but there is an element of our culture that likes yeah, him. But, you know, he, he has, uh, since he announced his candidacy, uh, his numbers have gone down among Democrats and up among Republicans. He's now the darling of Tucker Carlson and the Conspiracy theory crowd. I will say for the record, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, mm-hmm. and I had COVID twice. Thank you for clearing that. Yes, and uh, and I'll t- tell you something else. I, maybe I better check it with 23andMe, but uh, but I uh, I'm also someone who grew up inspired by Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. He really was the greatest influence, my greatest political influence uh, as a kid, and and I am who I am in part because of that. It's painful mm-hmm. to see someone defile his name his son defile his name by building a campaign on a platform of uh, really, really vile conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic tropes. Um, And the fact that they're giving him this platform, I think is, you know, I think they think it's mischief uh, within the Democratic primary to give Robert F. Kennedy Jr. a platform. These are not serious people. And they need to get serious. These, you know, we have a lot of serious issues in this country, and this is a big waste of time. And you're giving a guy a platform who's going to abuse it. But also Republicans are saying that some Republicans, I should note, are saying that 
Jayapal should be censured or there should be some kind of act because of her comments. But they're also still saying that this guy can still come on Capitol Hill and testify. This is what drives me crazy in this moment of the Republican Party is we lose the moral high ground and the credibility on issues we care about, like anti-Semitism, when we're not going to condemn it. If it's somebody who's maybe one of ours, David is right, that he's been you know, supported by people like Steve Bannon and the likes, but then we're not going to uh, condemn it when it's someone else. David Oxrod, Elspera Griffin, thank you for fact-checking that. That was perfect. Was <laughs> Ahead, he faced Donald Trump's wrath after certifying Biden's win in Georgia and saying he couldn't do what Trump didn't wanted him to do when it came to overturning the election results. But will he support Trump again? Yeah, I told him exactly what I could and couldn't do when it came to the election, and I followed the law and the Constitution. But that's a lot bigger than Donald Trump. It's a lot bigger than me. It's a lot bigger than the Republican Party. That exclusive interview with Republican Governor Brian Kemp is next. Georgia could prove to be one of the most crucial battleground states in 2024. It certainly was in 2020, and it remains at the center of two investigations into former President Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the election results. Earlier today, I sat down with Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp in Washington who made news on whether or not he is considering running in the crowded 2024 field, saying it's not in it for him. Governor, thank you for joining us here in Washington. Normally, I would probably ask this question last, but because of some comments you made recently, I'm going to ask it first. Have you fully closed the door on running for president in 2024? (laughs) Well, I have a lot of people writing a lot of different things about me in uh, 2024. And I've, I've said, look, in politics, there's always doors opening and closing. I got a great job right now. Uh, I personally feel like having more people in the race does not help us win and beat Joe Biden. Um, so, you know, I, I'm certainly not running for president, uh, but there's always doors open in politics, depending on how things play out. And we'll see what happens. You do know this field of people who are running pretty well, a few mm-hmm. other sitting governors. What do you make of the current race? Is there anyone that you would think could actually beat Donald Trump? Well, it doesn't seem like there's a lot going on right now. I mean, there is with the fundraising numbers coming out, but the race has been pretty stagnant if you're looking at all the national polls. But, you know, I don't, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. You're in the, uh, fixing to be uh, in the dog days of August and, you know, it just hasn't been a lot of movement. I think people are getting their legs under them now and so I think there's still a long, a long way to go in the race, and um, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Are you surprised that Governor DeSantis has not gained more traction? I mean, you reference the polls, you talk about the fundraising. Are you surprised he hasn't been a, a more formidable challenger to Trump so far? If you talk to his camp, they're doing a lot of really good things, you know, a lot of good things on the ground, and they're, they're in it for the long haul. I think Ron was in a pretty tough spot when he got in the race. His numbers were so high before he got in, in some ways he didn't have anywhere to go, uh, and now he's gotten in a stagnant place, but they're making a lot of changes. But there's a lot of other great candidates in the race. A lot of friends of mine are in the race. And so I'm continuing to watch and see where they go. But my thing is, Caitlin, we got to win. You know, we got to have a candidate that can win and can beat Joe Biden and can win in states like Georgia. There is no path for us to win the White House if we can't win Georgia. And so that's what I've stayed focused on. And really, I've had a message to every candidate out there. Listen, we have to tell the American people what we are for. Uh, we got to be forward thinking and tell them what we're going to do. We can't be looking in the rearview mirror. And then we got to have a candidate that can beat Joe Biden in November. 
You say the road to the White House must include Georgia. I mean, can Donald Trump win Georgia? He's the front runner right now. Well, I think he can uh, because Joe Biden's been such a bad president. His approval ratings are, are just terrible uh, in the state of Georgia right now. So I think he can. I also think he can lose Georgia uh, if he's not doing what I said, telling people what he's for, staying focused on the race, quit looking back at the 2020 election. I mean, for goodness sakes, that was two and a half, three years ago now. Uh, the American people want to know what are you going to do for me to help me offset the bad policies of Joe Biden. I mean, Biden talks about, you know, the middle out. We're going to grow the economy from the middle out and the, and the bottom up. The only thing coming out of the middle right now is people's money coming out of their wallet. You apparently said at a Republican donor retreat recently that, quote, not a single swing voter in a single swing state will vote for our nominee if they choose to talk about the 2020 election being stolen. But the Republican frontrunner is still saying that. He still talks about it all the time. I think if he continues to do that, he's going to lose Georgia in November. Uh, I mean, people are not worried about the past, regardless about, of how you feel about the election. You know, if you're a Republican and you feel like, you know, if you're a moderate Republican or, you know, if you're a center left uh, independent or, or center right independent, uh, they are not worried about the 2020 election right now. And if you feel like the election was stolen and I know there's people that are out there that do, there's others that, you know, don't. But it doesn't really matter. You said you'll do what you can to get the Republican nominee elected, even if it's Trump. I'm going to certainly be supporting a Republican nominee to beat Joe Biden. But even, I mean, Trump pressured you to overturn the election. He wanted you to call a special session. He, he said he was ashamed that he had endorsed you because you didn't do. You said you couldn't do what he wanted you to do there. I mean, he called you hapless. Even despite all of that, you would still work to get him elected. He's a nominee. He was mad at me. I was not mad at him. I told him exactly what I could and couldn't do when it came to the election, and I followed the law and the Constitution. And as I've said before, that's a lot bigger than Donald Trump. It's a lot bigger than me. It's a lot bigger than the Republican Party. And that's what I'm going to continue to do as the governor. And that's what I did in 2020. Uh, but despite all of those things, I believe anybody running for president right now is a Republican that would be better than what we're seeing with the Biden-Harris administration. I just think it might surprise some people that you would work to help get him elected, given your history with him. Well, I would ask a lot of people. I mean, I, you know, I have people that say, you know, I just can't go there and do that. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the next president's going to be picking probably another Supreme Court justice and, you know, uh, judges on the Court of Appeals and federal judgeships and, you know, dealing with strengthening our military and standing up to our adversaries around the world. And who do you want, to, who, who would you want to be your president? I mean, that's the question that everybody's got to ask themselves. You know, he may or may not be the nominee. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, is close, we are told, to announcing a charging decision in her investigation. Of course, it's gone on for two, two years now into Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the results in your state. Are you surprised that it's taken this long to, to announce if there are going to be charges? Well, I'm probably more disappointed that it's taken this long. People are wondering, like, why is this taking so long? Why, have we ha why haven't we had resolution? Um, so I think, I think that just sows distrust in the system, which is unfortunate. That's not what people should be feeling, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. So it is... You know, in my eyes, frustrating, but we'll see what she comes out with and at the appropriate time.
comments there from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who I should note when he talked about people who still believe the election is stolen, made clear that he does not believe that. Up next tonight, we are going to talk about Putin vowing revenge after Ukraine bombed a key bridge. It looks like Russia may already be striking back. Tonight, Russia is launching airstrikes in southern Ukraine. Explosions were seen and heard by CNN's team that is on the ground in the city of Odessa. This is coming nearly 24 hours after Ukraine took the rare step of claiming responsibility for attacking a key bridge in Russian-occupied Crimea. The Kremlin says that Ukrainian sea drones targeted this 12-mile-long bridge that directly connects Crimea to the mainland of Russia. The bridge is a personal project of President Putin's and essentially seen as his way to assert Russia's dominance over Crimea, which I should note he illegally annexed in 2014. Ukrainians revile the bridge, seeing it as a reminder of Russia's initial invasion. Today, Putin called the strike on the bridge a terrorist attack and issued this warning. There definitely will be a response from Russia. The Ministry of Defense is preparing proposals. Joining me now, retired U.S. Army Major General Dana Petard. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I mean, he says essentially they were prepared for a retaliation. Do you believe these strikes that we're seeing happening in Odessa right now are that retaliation? Well, good evening, Caitlin. Uh, yes, I do. In fact, it's uh, retaliation for the blowing up of the, the Kerch uh, Strait Bridge. This bridge is symbolic for Putin. Obviously, it, personally it is. Remember, he, he drove a Mercedes across it to show that it was safe after the last attack on this bridge. But it's also strategic because it's the only essentially direct link to Russia from Crimea as well. I mean, clearly that's why the Ukrainians were targeting it in that attack this morning. No, absolutely. It's a key supply line that uh, links mainland Russia with the Crimean Peninsula. And it's been used uh, by the Russians as a supply line since their invasion in 2022. And this is coming as Ukraine is conducting this counteroffensive. Even Zelensky, President Zelensky has said it's going slower than they hoped it was. What do you make of the fact that they are using a naval drone for this attack on the Kerch Strait Bridge? What does it say about Ukraine's military capabilities? Well, I think it's ingenious. In fact, I'm sure it gives Russians uh, concern, both uh, from the land and the sea, that the Ukrainians have the ability now to use sea drones that can go underwater um, and be used either against Russian ships or um, bridges or other things near the sea. Uh, but what, what's also happening on the Ukrainian side, though, is their counteroffensive is stalled. This is not what they had planned to do. And what do you, how do you think they change that? Well, they're trying to uh, do a couple things. One is isolate uh, the Crimean uh, Peninsula like they're doing, making it untenable for the Russians. They're continuing to try to probe the Russian defenses uh, to find a point where they can conduct a penetration, exploit it, attack through it, and drive towards the Sea of Azov. But up to this point, they haven't been able to do that because of the, the, the Russian-layered defenses. And as this is going on, Russia announced that they terminated a grain deal with Ukraine. I mean, this is not something that only matters to Ukraine and to Russia. This is shaking global, the global food market. I mean, Ukraine accounts for 10 percent of the world's wheat market, 15 percent of the corn market, 13 percent of the barley market. You know, do you believe another country is going to have to get involved here? What's your expectation? What are the ramifications of Putin terminating this deal? 
Well, uh, President Putin suspending the, the Black Sea Grain Initiative is huge. Uh, a lot of countries, as you mentioned, uh, depend on it. Countries from Africa, the Middle East, even China has become much more dependent upon Ukrainian grain. Uh, so I do believe that at some point uh, China will prod Russia um, to go back to the negotiating table for the Black Sea Grain Initiative because they we'll depend upon that grain also. Yeah, we'll see if China does do that. General Dana Pittard, thank you so much for your expertise tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Ahead, on the eve of a key hearing for Donald Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nauta, the judge in the classified documents case has just issued an order to Trump's team about what she wants to talk about. Her warning on what to be prepared for tomorrow is next. Donald Trump's lawyers and prosecutors from the Justice Department are both preparing for their first hearing tomorrow in front of Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida. She, of course, is the judge who is going to oversee the classified documents case. And today she did put both sides on notice that they will be talking about a trial date tomorrow. Here with me tonight for Insight, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, a former chief assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office. Tomorrow is going to be interesting for so many reasons. I mean, it's the first time we've seen Judge Cannon in this role as she's overseeing this case. So we could get insight into what she's going to do, but also when a trial could be potentially. Yeah, I think everyone's going to be watching to see how she's going to play things because don't forget she ruled in a way previously last fall on the search warrant in a way that seemed to favor Trump. She got reversed. And so everyone's looking to see what will she do here because uh, the trial was set for August the Department of Justice through Jack Smith said, how about December? We can't be ready in August. And Trump's team said, actually, no, don't set a trial date at all because the election's coming up. So we'll see, is she going to set a trial date at all? Will it be before the election? Or will she go along with Trump's team and not set a trial date? So she could set a trial date tomorrow, potentially. Yeah, and that's what's typically done in federal cases. Typically, they set a trial date, and you work backwards from there. You know, you, you discuss what's reasonable. There's a Speedy Trial Act that requires a speedy trial, but there are certain exceptions and, and pauses that can be put on it, and all of that is discussed ahead of time. But typically, there is a trial date set, and so that would be what would commonly happen in a federal yeah. case. We're also waiting to see what's going to happen in Georgia. I spoke with this state's Republican governor earlier today, Brian Kemp, and I asked him his view, essentially, on why we haven't seen charges yet, if there are going to be charges. He said this. Are you surprised that it's taken this long to, to announce if there are going to be charges? Well, I'm probably more disappointed that it's taken this long. People are wondering, like, why is this taking so long? Why, have we ha why haven't we had resolution um, so I think I think that just sows distrust in the system, which is unfortunate. That's not what people should be feeling, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. So it is, you know, in my eyes, frustrating. But we'll see what she comes out with and at the appropriate time. It's been two years. Is that longer than typically you would see? I mean, this is you can't really compare this to anything else. But is that longer? It depends on what she ultimately does. If if this is a one count indictment about the phone call, find 11,780 know, votes, that would be unusual and this would be quite taking quite long. But if she comes out with what we think is a multi-defendant sweeping uh, indictment that encompasses a lot of different states 
the um, racketeering, you know, RICO Act, this racketeering uh, charges that we think she's going to bring. I think it's going to be, it could be hundreds of pages, this indictment. And if that's the case, then no, that would be typical to take this long. And do you expect that based on just reading the tea leaves, obviously, but the idea that she's told the court to essentially clear the calendar, they've talked about security for the month of August, the fact that it has been two years that they've been investigating? I think it's possible, for sure. I mean, this was a huge, sweeping effort to uh, basically overthrow the election, right? And so it just depends on how far she wants to go. I mean, there's so many people who were involved in this scheme. And so it just depends on how many defendants, how many charges, and how sweeping it is, whether she goes nationwide or she sticks with just Georgia. Yeah, and it could include as... I noted to Kemp there, even some of the Republican former state officials. Karen Friedman, Agnivolo, thank you for joining us tonight. Ahead, two milestones in the world of law enforcement. A history-making day as Edward Caban was appointed as New York City's police commissioner today. The son of a Puerto Rican transit police officer now becoming the first Latino officer to lead the nation's largest police force in its 177-year history. Washington, D.C. also nominating a new police chief today. If, if confirmed by the D.C. City Council, Pamela Smith, that you see here, would be the second woman and the first black woman to permanently run that department. Also, a special programming before we go tonight. Tune into The Lead tomorrow at 4 p.m., my colleague Jake Tapper will be interviewing Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Of course, a lot to ask him. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll see you here tomorrow. Stand in primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.